Greg Fitzsimmons is a stand-up comedian who has been in the game for nearly 35 years. He not only hones his craft on stage, as he is going to be doing at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend, but uh, he also does so via three different podcasts. You can check him out on Fitzdog Radio, Childish, and Sunday Papers, and he joins me now to talk about some of those things. Greg, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great, man. Excited to come to Austin this weekend. Yeah, you are uh, going to be here headlining at Joe Rogan's new place, the Comedy Mothership, your friend Joe. And uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to check the place out yet, either walking through when it was still under construction or since it opened up back in March. But man, just from a, an audience member perspective, it is a beautiful club. And according to the comedians that I've spoken with about it so far, I mean, it is a top-notch club for comedians, too. Uh, for you as somebody who has obviously uh, performed in countless clubs over the years, what does the idea of a club uh, that is perfect for comedians mean to you? Well, it's a good question because, you know, Joe has obviously, you know, been in clubs for as long as I have, 33 years. And, uh, uh, you know, you learn certain things about the acoustics and the, the sight lines. And, you know, he really built the club to have... Uh, you know, sound, I think by putting absorbent materials in, keeping the audience dark, the way you light the stage. And then at a certain point, I think Louis C.K. came in like a month before they were going to open. And he was like, this stage should be like 18 inches higher. Hmm. And they, they, they delayed opening so they could start construction and move the stage height. And, uh, you know, and I think how... It's also really important that it trickles down from the management of how the audience is treated when they come in. You know, mm -hmm. if you really treat them res with respect and you also let them know that this is a place of respect for the comedians, then uh, then everything works great. And you police the room really well, which I know they do. Because, uh, you know, Texas crowds can be a little rowdy. You know that. Mm -hmm. You know, Jim Bob comes in and Jim Bob's used to getting whatever he wants. He's got an F-250 out front. There's four wheels in the back. There's a bandana. There's a lot of bumper stickers. A lot of bumper stickers. Jim Bob wants you to know what he thinks about everything, including the fact that there may be a gun on board. Yeah, you can uh, erase maybe. There is a gun on board, and the bumper sticker tells you the exact type of gun that's on board, that's right? right? Yes, and it's one of many. And, uh, you know, I, was, I get shit from Joe about not having a gun. And uh, and he took me to a shooting range one time and uh, in L.A. And I got to shoot an AK-47 modified with a shotgun barrel. And it almost blew my shoulder off. And I have to say, I I was semi erect. I got a I got a <laughs> little bit excited and I'm not a gun guy. I've always, you know, I'm like I, I lean a little bit more towards liberal. And and he's like. Well, what if somebody breaks into your house? And I'm like, then I'll die. I guess I'll just die. I said, it's very rare that someone actually breaks into your house and shoots you. And if it happens, I'll take a bullet like a man and I'll go down. Like, what am I going to have? Like, my my bedside table is going to have, like, uh, my sleep mask and my melatonin and my Al-Anon 12-step daily meditation thought book and a cult 45 on top of that. And then I'm going to I'm going to break into a hot 
gunfight at 3 a.m. with somebody. It's like, no, I don't need that. I got a nice house. I don't need bullet holes in my walls. Reminding my kids that daddy lost the gunfight. That daddy's not good at gunfighting. I may get kicked out of Texas for admitting this. I don't own a gun either. And I've never understood the idea of protecting yourself with an overnight intruder. Because if you are using the gun, I guess, responsibly, it's in a gun safe. And do you have time to run all the way to the gun (laughs) safe and do the fingerprint? And maybe you have to fingerprint a second or third time to get the gun out. Right. Like you said, are you just going to have it in that drawer in the bedside table right next to the melatonin and uh, whatever the evening read is? Yeah. And what are you going to say? Hey, just start in the dining room. The silver's in the cabinet and underneath the mirror. I got I got something I got to do real quick. What, what is it? 24, 37. Wait, it's my birthday. Is it to the left first? <laughs> uh, so you're, you're absolutely right, by the way, about the comedy mothership doing a good job of policing the crowd going in. They're very clear with their communication about, hey, you need to shut up. This is not about you. This is about the comedians on stage. There's signs posted on walls. I was actually at a show early on where some dum-dum was in the very front row and she tried to turn the show into Mystery Science Theater 3000 and she got kicked uh-huh. out immediately. Yeah, yeah. The, the I think it was Tony Hinchcliffe on stage at the time. He gave her one chance and is like, hey, you need to shut up right now or this isn't going to end well for you. And she decided to keep chirping So she gets kicked out. And the dude that she was with, though, because he didn't want to miss this incredible show, was like, yeah, I'll see you outside. I love it. I love when dudes do that. It's like, you know, what's your relationship? All right. What's your relationship? Now, if somebody attacks your woman, you got to step in. If somebody if somebody talks to her in a a disparaging way, you got to step up. But if she makes an ass of herself, you are an ass if you leave with her. You're condoning it. You got to, you got to, no, I'm not going to go down that road, but you know what I mean. Yep. Well, now I'm curious to know the road you were going down. You're essentially a comedy club cuck if you decide to leave with her there and she's blatantly wrong. That's right. And that just means that it, 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 it gives you an insight into what their sex life is like, where, you know, (laughs) where, where if, if you, if you go first, you, you know, you get, you get an attitude from her. You know what I'm saying? Like she demands to go first. No, no, no. That's not how it works. It's a race. I'm 57 years old. I'm going for it out of the gate. I'm not, I'm not pulling back on the reins so you can take your time with your Rob Lowe fantasy. Is that a good reference? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that reference still works. Okay. I think. Um, you married? What's that? You married? Yeah, I've been married for 10 years now. We've got an eight and six-year-old at home. So uh, nice. the, the romance is dead, as they say. Yeah, well, it'll come back. It'll come back. It was like that for me, but it it returns. It'll be good again. How long you been married for? 24 years. Okay. And uh, how many kids do y'all have? We got a 22-year-old and we got a 19-year-old. So, you know, we're kind of like, my work is done. I've I've done it. Like at this point, I really feel like the best thing for me to do is just tell my kids, you're on your own. You got to, I got to tell them they got to move out soon. I want, I want the empty nest thing back. 
Oh, so the kids, or at least one of the kids is not out of the house just yet. One is home. She's going to school in LA. And then the other one is in Chicago, but he graduates in a week and then he's coming home. And uh, I don't like, I don't, I don't need, I don't need four adults in a house. You know, it's like, you know, when, when suddenly you're going like, Hey, you didn't do the dishes. It's like, what do I got a roommate again? It's like, no, get, get out. I didn't move home after college. That's right. You did your 18 years of indentured servitude here right. to learn how to be a self-sufficient human. Now you need to go figure it out for yourself. Yeah, there's only so much I can teach them. And at this point, if they stay home any longer, I'm just teaching them that they don't have to go for it. And they don't have to figure out life. So my son doesn't know this yet, but he's going to get he's going to get like a, a one year notice that he's got to get out. Does that seem hard? One year is a lot of time. I think yeah. most people give you like a month or two. Yeah, yeah. But you're showing that unconditional love, I guess. I'm just, you got to kick them out of the nest. And it's like, you know, there's something very Oedipal about your son when he gets to be a certain age where he starts to be a threat. Like we used to wrestle all the time and he he's a varsity athlete. He played soccer in college and so we were wrestling recently and he choked me out and I had to tap out. And what he didn't realize was he won the fight, but he just lost his residency. <laughs> he now has the physical and psychological upper hand, but uh, yeah. you still have the financial control. That's right. That's right. And that's huge. And uh, if he wants to make me tap out, then he, he can just start packing. That's not how you treat your father. You let your father win. Yeah, it's a total role reversal. Well, my six-year-old son just beat me in a video game the other day. I'm terrible at video games, but he beat me in the video game, and it it truly is the highlight of his life right now. Yeah. He's like, oh, I, I just realized I'm going to get to be better than you at a lot of stuff in life. Yeah. Even though you're twice, three times my size right now. I remember me and my brother had a foot race with my dad. He took us to a track, and we were like, maybe 13 or something. And we did a race and my father tripped and he fell down. And then he screamed at my brother that he had tripped him. My brother did not trip him. And he screamed at him. And I was like, oh, okay. We got, we got that dad. We've got that dad who has no emotional development at all. He's a child. How much more emotional development do you have as a dad or did you have as a dad when your kids were kids? Well, I started later. My dad, I think, was 23 when he had us and he was an alcoholic his whole life. So there's no growth. Once you're a drunk, all you're trying to do is get back to the bar. When yeah. you're home, that's just a timeout from when you're not really living the life that you feel like you were meant to live, which is with your friends, listen to Frank Sinatra in a dark bar in New York City. And uh, so, yeah, there was no growth. There was no growth for him at all. Well, it, show, it gives you a uh, a blueprint on what not to do, though. Like I come from a similar, oh, yeah. where I come from a similar situation where my dad was constantly chasing his other vices. Yeah, had little time for his family. So I realized that even though it's important to carve out time for yourself that you can be fresh for those moments where uh, those other little humans are reliant on you. You can't do too much of that because at that point, you're just completely self-serving. 
That's which is what point. one-year-old birthday parties are for. It's for parents to show that, hey, we've made it that one year. This little human is still alive, but that's yeah. a one-year-old's birthday party versus every day of your existence. Right, right. And then my dad was good at that. My dad was great at birthday parties. He was great at, you know, the one vacation we would take a year. He was like the most fun guy in the world, laughed with the other parents, put on an amazing show. But it was on the day-to-day -day stuff. It was on the like coming home, you know, for dinner, sitting with us. I mean, I can't remember once in my life of him, him or my mom ever checking my homework because mm -hmm. they just, they were too young to have kids. They didn't know what they were doing, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that if you can learn from that, you can be a great dad. Like, I really feel like there's two directions to go. You can either become that dad or like I quit drinking when I was like 25. I haven't had a drop since, uh, since I was 25 years old. And, um, and that was completely because of him and I'm a great dad. I'm totally present. I mean, I'm on the road a lot, which is tough, but I make it up to them when I'm home. And it's the thing that I take away from my life that it sounds like you will too, which is like, I put my family first and uh, I have balance. That's it. Like you said, you need some time with your friends. You got to recharge, but they're the, they're the first priority. Yeah, I'm in awe of my wife because she refuses to take time for herself. And I beg her at times. I'm like, please go do the Manny Petty thing. Go you know, whatever stereotypical thing may exist that she actually enjoys doing. It's like, please take some time for yourself. I I, yeah. I am in awe of you, how it's always about everybody else, but at some yeah. point you're going to wear yourself out if you don't take those little breaks there and there. Is she working? She works also. Yeah. She's, really? she's actually making a difference in the, this world. I'm a, I'm the jackass on the radio and doing a podcast. Meanwhile, she's a family nurse practitioner who just got her doctorate. No, really? Yeah. Oh, she's a rock star. Oh, she is. I I mean, th that whole outkick your coverage thing has become very cliche over year over the years. But if that definition still exists, uh, a picture of my wife and me is is right there in the in the uh, dictionary. That's nice to know because, like, I think that um, if you have one person in the relationship who's got that steady real career, it lets the other person play out their childhood fantasy and play with you know. The, the two cups with a string on it that you're talking to each other and whatever else we do. I am told regularly that I dress like a 12 year old. So uh, <laughs> clearly <laughs> the other part of that equation there. Are you, a, are you an Austin guy? Is that where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in the, uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area, but I went to school at Texas and basically spent the better part of the first 12 years of adulthood in Austin so uh -huh. even though I moved away to Oregon for a little bit and then Chicago, which is where your son has been for school and is about to leave, right. I came back to Austin with her as my wife and uh, our firstborn eight years ago now. And it was a great move because Chicago went downhill very quickly. And Austin's just an awesome place. I mean, I, I literally have spent more of my life in Austin than anywhere else at this point. Yeah, and I would be uh, completely satisfied if this is where we were for the rest of our time, too. It's not getting too crowded now. I, I mean, yeah, it is in some some senses, but um, but Austin's in Travis County and we're in Williamson County, which is just north of that. Yeah. So we're in the suburbs, but we are close enough to the highway 
to actually get into the city when we want to, to go see a comedy show or go grab a good meal or something. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, would it be nice to be able to move a little bit further out? Sure. But we're also happy where we are right now too. So are you a stars fan? Uh, Dallas stars, uh, you know, ho hockey's okay. I actually liked the Blackhawks a whole lot. I was a total uh -huh. bandwagoner when they won yeah. the Stanley cups a, a decade or so ago, but I was also working for WG and radio at the time. Yeah. So we had a really good working relationship with the Blackhawks and got to go to a bunch of games for free. And I stood next to the Stanley cup countless times at this point uh, in those three years where they had won it all. And so, you know, I, I'm at a weird point in life, Greg, where even though I'm on ESPN Austin, I'm trying to find ways to care less about sports. Yeah, I can I see that more than anything else. But I'm limited on time here, man. I, you know, yeah, I gamble yeah. on sports because that's just uh, one of those vices that I saw affect my dad and uh, his marriage. So yeah. I stay away from that. And, uh, you know, I just don't have the time to sit through 82 regular season NBA games, hockey games. Major League Baseball is a completely different beast too. Even though they've uh, they've now finally uh, made some moves to shorten each game up. Thank like, just, God. You can always Thank find a way to waste God. time on sports. Sports is to men what reality television has uh, become to women over the last right. fifteen years or so. You know. Well, yeah, it's emotional, and I think for men, sports is a way to safely feel emotions because mm. it's not real. It's not between you and another guy. Like me and my son would always watch football together. And it's like, you can almost like, you can almost like play out what's going on between you with what's happening on the screen. You know, it becomes vicarious. It becomes like a metaphor. Like I remember watching a game this year with my son and I was like, I was like, wow, it seems like, uh, seems like Aaron Rodgers is having a hard time lately. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I think he is. And I said, well, what do you think is going on with him? He said, well, I think the coach is pushing him too hard. I think the coach is always on his back. He won't let up. I said, well, that's probably because the coach sees how much potential Aaron <laughs> Rodgers has, and he wants to make sure he reaches that full. Well, he should back off. It's too much. I said, well, you know, Aaron Rodgers' contract is up this year, and then I guess he could figure out where he's going to get his own money from. And he's like, Dad? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I think Aaron Rodgers might be gay. I'm like, all right, let's watch some hockey. Here we go. <laughs> oh, man. Has the fact that baseball games have been shortened by about 30 minutes helped you to want to watch that sport anymore? Oh, my God. Yeah, I had given up on it because I was a huge fan. We had uh, season tickets for the New York Mets when I was growing up, and I was a huge Mets fan, and I suffered through – the late seventies and the early eighties when they were the worst, just the worst team. And we got made fun of because the Yankees were great back then and, and the Mets were terrible. And so, um, and then when they got good and they won the world series in 86, it was like, I, it, it rolled so many different things in one. It wasn't just my team won. It was like, I was validated. I, I had stuck with somebody during a hard time and then watched their success. And my father, who was in radio in New York, mm. his radio station covered the Mets. And so my father was like really good friends with Rusty Staub, uh, Wally Backman, Keith Hernandez. And those, he used to play golf with those guys. Wow. And so I was in college in Boston and he came up for game four 
and he uh, and he had great seats. And I took a couple of my friends from college, and we went to see the World Series in Boston. And uh, and it just, I mean, it was insane how how great it felt. And then I kind of was like, I don't have enough time anymore. Like I started my career in stand up, and I was just like, I don't. I'm working nights. I don't have time for this. And I and and the games are too long. And so now I went to a Dodgers game. Uh, I think it was the second game of the season and it was two hours and 15 minutes. I was like, this is great. This is exactly what it should be. And it's like the days of like, you know, like every other sport, when the players take the field, they, they run, they sprint, they charge on the field. Baseball, they just kind of meander. They just wander out. Shoelaces aren't tied. They're smoking a cigarette, drinking a big gulp. And you're like, all right, I guess we're going to start now. There's 50,000 people waiting. And they're like, nah, now nah, we're going to play catch for about five minutes. Matter <laughs> of fact, we're going we're gonna to play catch every time we switch sides. There's going to be a big catch session. And then you're like, all right, I guess we're going to start now. It's like, nah, not yet. First, this guy has to stand in a circle and practice swinging a bat. The guy's been swinging a bat since he was four years old. And he's got to stand there and go like, all right. How does this go again? I go, I go like this, it, it's like this. And then, and then he steps up to the plate and then you're like, all right, I guess now we're going to finally start. It's like, no, no, no. Now the pitcher and the catcher, they got to play their little game where the pitcher looks at the catcher and he's like, guess which pitch I'm going to throw. And then he shakes his head. No, that's not it. Try again. Now screw all these people that are watching. Who cares? Let's play warmer, warmer. And, and then the guy finally hits it. And then he stops at each base. What is that? There's, it's not safety. What are you, seven? You keep running around the bases until your tackle bag guy from the other team who's carrying the ball. And a bat. I think every player on the field should carry a bat throughout the game. 18 guys jacked up on steroids, frothing at the mouth, swinging bats at each other. That I would watch every night. Yeah, there's a, uh, a sense of self-defense that is absent from baseball right now if you have everybody carrying bats around. Yes! I mean, and they don't really fight anymore, do they? When's the last time there was a good baseball fight? Yeah, you, you know, baseball is one of those interesting sports where you get the promise of fights. Yeah. Occasionally you do get a good scrap, like with Nolan Ryan and Robin Ventura Yeah, 20 plus years ago. But for the most part, it's a lot like those almost fights in high school. Uh-huh. It's like one guy running at the other person, r- running at the other guy, and he starts to slow down right before he gets there because he's hoping yeah. his friend's We'll grab yeah. his shoulders to keep him from actually getting to the point where he has to make contact. Exactly. Did you get any fist fights in your life? Um, uh, friends when we were drunk, which is always stupid and you have to apologize for afterwards. Yeah. But the only other quasi fight that I've been in my life was when I got jumped by like four other dudes. No way. After my senior year in high school that left me with 24 stitches in the back of my head. It explains a lot. No and, way. Uh, these dudes all got kicked out of school for good. One of them was a promising baseball star and that got completely derailed. Yeah, it was a terrible situation. Why did they jump you? Um, Because uh, two of the guys in this group, I'd known their uh, our entire lives. They were a little bit younger than me. And they had joined this uh, this group called the Jinko, the Jinko gang, where they wore the, you remember Jinko jeans? No be a little bit uh, young for you, but uh, these Jinko jeans, I mean, I'm not even kidding you. It's like you were wearing a tarp for jeans. 
Uh-huh. Each gene leg was like five times as big as it should be. And I'm not exaggerating yeah. that either. Uh-huh. So they were part of the Jinko gang. And all of a sudden they were acting really tough and they drove by my house at one point. I was outside shooting baskets and they were just staring me down. And I throw my hands up like, what do you little jackasses want right now? You think you're yeah. proving something? You think you're proving tough by staring me down? I yeah. saw you when you were prepubescent. Don't even start to give me that attitude. Yeah. And so they called up a couple of other buddies who then all came to where I was shooting baskets in my own driveway. One of them grabbed the stick that I used to raise and lower the goal. And as they were surrounding me talking trash, the one who was the promising baseball star decided to take a, one of those major league practice swings from the on deck circle to the back of my head. No. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's psychotic. It was. Yeah. And he paid a serious price for it too. Unfortunate for him. He apologized to me years later, which I'd moved on by then. I guess I appreciated that uh, he's able to show that level of remorse. But yeah, it was a pretty uh, ugly moment in life. Did the other guys jump in too after that, or it was just a one hit thing? I think the one took a swing at me, but like as soon as I got hit in the head, I kind of leaned forward a little bit and then I ran right back into my garage to basically yeah. grab something to defend myself. Yeah. And I think in that moment, they realized what they had done and they all scattered like rats. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was not good for any of them. Like two, Damn, of them I'm sorry, man. That's two that I knew apologized almost immediately. Yeah. The one apologized after that. And then the guy who actually hit me with the stick apologized years later when I saw so him. So he a, lost like scholarships and stuff. Yeah. I actually saw him at a random bar that's less than a block away from where Rogan's comedy club is. Oh, really? Fact. And he was, wow. he was apologetic. It's a bar that I think you would now have to, uh, go through a metal detector to get into because dirty six has gotten so bad in the last few years. But, uh, yeah, well, that's a random story. I've never told that on the air. Thank you for pulling. Wow. That's heavy, man. That's heavy. Have you ever been into a fight? A lot of them. Yeah. I I had a bad temper and I was a drunk and, uh, I went to, I went to jail twice for fighting. How long did you spend in jail? Just the weekend. Okay. Yeah. So you got the full bologna sandwich treatment then, which is not a euphemism. The, the food was really bad, but you know, it was even worse is I, both times I got arrested on a Friday night and both mm. times they told me the judge comes in on Monday morning. So settle in for the weekend. And so, um, once was in Providence, Rhode Island, and then once was in New York. And, uh, the worst part is there's no windows and this is in one in the one in New York, there's no windows. They kept the lights on 24 hours a day. And there was no clocks. And so you had no idea how much time was passing. That was like the real torture. And then the guy that I got in a fight with was in the next cell from me. Oh, God. And he's he's yelling at me in Spanish. He's cursing me out in Spanish. I have no idea what he's saying. And uh, he tried to like reach. He tried to reach into my cell. <laughs> and I was like, what are you going to do? What do you think? I'm going to put my neck up to the corner of the cell so you can choke me. <laughs> Was this in New York City? No, I grew up in Tarrytown, which is about 15 okay. miles north of the city on the Hudson River. Beautiful town. So you said the drinking was getting a little bit out of control. Is that ultimately why you quit at 25? You were seeing too many signs that you were beginning to turn into your dad? Yeah, like my dad used to come home with black eyes sometimes and mm. uh, got DUIs and stuff. And so I was, I started to see that behavior and I I. I 
I had what they call a shallow bottom where, you know, I was, I didn't need to get to the point where I was, you know, losing jobs and, you know, doing things I regretted. So I, I mean, I did things I regretted, but you know, not to, not to the level that it could have gotten to. So I got out early and, uh, and I really have my life to uh, thank for it. You know, like I, I don't think I'd be married today. I don't think I would be a good father. And so, uh, yeah, it was really, it was really good for me. You know, speaking of uh, making mistakes and doing things that you regretted, it was more than a decade ago that you came out with your first book, which was not only about that, I think it was done so creatively too. And just looking at the scope of your career and just how widespread your writing credits are, I'm kind of surprised that uh, we haven't gotten a second book out of you, Greg. Is that just a, a matter of it being way too labor intensive? Are you considering writing a second book? What's going on there? I will never write another book. That was the most anxiety provoking. I ended up on medication because of that. I almost had a nervous breakdown. It wow. was like having a final exam every single day. That's how much, that's what it felt like every night. Mm. I used to stay up until I have an office near my house and I would go there. And I remember I would come home to feed my kids breakfast and see them off to school. And then I would sleep. I was staying up all night. And uh, it, it was, it, I just, I have ADHD. I'm not made, I'm not made to do things like that. It was, it was really tough. Mm. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I have that book because I just look back on my life and it's nice to know that like my grandkids will watch my specials and read my book and I don't know, maybe listen to my podcast. Maybe that's probably not a good idea. Just depends on the podcast episode, I guess, right? Yeah, maybe I should have warnings on some of them because uh, my kids once in a while listen and I ask them to please not listen. My mother listens. She's horrified. I mean, I talk about crazy stuff from my earlier days and uh, there was a lot of drug use. There was a lot of, I, I slept with a lot of women, a oh, yeah. lot of women and a guy. And uh, so I don't want them finding out about that. Is that why they called you the Wilt Chamberlain, uh, Wilt Chamberlain of stand-up? That's right. That's right. Greg the Still. So speaking of books, I have you to thank for uh, helping to expose the world to Tom O'Neill's Chaos, which you oh yeah gave your boy Joe a tip and he had him on the show. I've actually had the pleasure of speaking with Tom about the book too. Oh, no kidding. That book is wild. And myself and plenty of others have begged him to write a second one because he claims he still has a ton of ton more info. Do you have any idea whether Tom is working on a uh, a follow-up to Chaos? I'm not at leisure to disclose that, but it is it is a distinct possibility. Okay. Now, did let me ask you this. Did Tom charge you for his podcast interview? Um, I, uh, he said he didn't have time, but I wanted to talk with him bad enough. He is literally the only guest, uh, the only podcast guest that I've ever paid for. <laughs> I can't believe he does that. I go, yeah. Tom, nobody does that. I've never heard of anybody charging for a podcast. No, but Hey, to his credit, <laughs> I think he, he's got enough of a market that he gets to, you know? Now I feel like I'm getting ripped off. I mean, I got to get a quote. I got to get a quote for podcasts from now on. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I take it you've read the book then. Oh, yeah. I read it the week it came out. And uh, 
He, I watched him write it. We were roommates, not roommates. We lived next door to each other in mm. New York, in Little Italy for like eight years. And then we both moved out to California at the same time. And we, we lived two doors down from each other in Venice. And so I watched him get up every morning, make a pot of coffee and dig in and write this book like eight hours a day, every day for 20 years. Yeah, you talked about how stressful writing a book was for you. This is something for him that started as like a 10,000 word magazine article. Yeah, yeah. And then turned but, into a series and then eventually became a book. And he, like every person who had attached themselves to the project at a certain point abandoned shit. But he knew yeah. he had something much too big to just give up on. Yeah, he was given like one and a half million dollars as an upfront when he sold it to uh, one publishing house. <clears throat> and then after about 12 years, they sued him to get the money back because he hadn't turned it in. So he was dead broke, in debt. He was driving an Uber. He was teaching English as a second language in East L.A. But he kept writing. He just kept going. And then he uh, eventually found another publisher who said, we'll give you a deal, but we have to attach a writer to you mm. to, to oversee you. And so they brought in this guy who was like a real hotshot biographer. He was like, you know, sold millions of copies. So he came in and in one year he reigned Tom in and they put something out and that, and that's the book. And now it's uh, going to be a, a, a feature. It's going to be a documentary on um, Amazon. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I had not heard that yet. That's all. That's awesome to hear. I mean, that's yeah. what deserves to see uh, much more light than it even has now. Thanks to, thanks to you and Rogan and others. Well, it's, it's a labor of love. I was happy to be any part of getting that book read. It, it deserves it. All right. Last question now, Greg, because you've been in stand up since the late eighties. Is that right? 1989. Yeah. You and Rogan actually yep. went up together for the very first time. Yeah. And then we were on the road together. Like, he, he, I was, he was dating my roommate. So he basically was living in my apartment for like the first year that we were uh, doing it. And we would just get in the car every night and we would drive to Providence one night. We drive to Nashua, New Hampshire the next night. We drive to Hartford, Connecticut the next night. And we were doing five minutes for free just to get stage time. And that it was like that for a year. And we just, we both were like the hungriest guys in Boston and we just went after it. And we used to write together during the day. And, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing to see his success. I'm really, I'm proud of him. He earned it. He always worked really hard. He always stuck to his guns, did exactly the kind of comedy he wanted to do, lived the kind of life he wanted to live. And it's pretty amazing when life rewards somebody for just being who they are. No doubt about that. So my question based on all that, because you've obviously seen the art form go through a number of ebbs and flows is stand-up comedy in as good a place as you've ever seen it since starting your career 35 years ago. Oh, I don't think comedy's ever been bigger in the history of this country. I think it's, you know, everything from Bert Kreischer and Segura and uh, you know, Joe Coy and it's just a million people doing arenas, 15,000 seat arenas. And then you've got laundromats in North Hollywood where people are telling jokes. You've got millions of people want to get into it now. You've got every level of comic. There's just comedy clubs, there's theaters, there's rock clubs constantly. I really worry that 
it's going to end, you know, because I don't know if we're getting oversaturated, but people in this country are fascinated and passionate about watching comedy right now. And uh, we'll see how long it lasts. But um, I'm glad to be on the gravy train. I was on the first comedy boom gravy train in the early 90s, and that went away. And I hung in there with it for 30 years. And now, uh, you know, now it's back on top again. I'd like to think that people are never going to completely lose their grip on enjoying stand-up comedy, especially with what we all went through over the last three plus years. Yeah. On top of a, a lot of the cancel culture stuff that was going on just before that too. Right. Right. No, I think that's a big part of it. Um, and I think the quality of it is a big part of it. And I think podcasts, you know, you get people that can generate their own crowds and, Comedy clubs used to promote shows and they used to attract people because they were a good club. And now they're just a place where you draw your own crowd for them. Mm. And, and so it's a different business model than it used to be. You have to be your own marketer, your own promoter, your own producer. Um, it's a lot more work than it used to be. Well, I'd like to tell you if you're watching or listening right now to go snag tickets to Greg's shows at the Comedy Mothership while you can, but the shows are sold out. Greg is just doing this because uh, he's a nice guy and uh, it's been a really enjoyable conversation too. Make sure to check him out uh, on his three podcasts, Fitz Dog Radio, Childish, and Sunday Papers. And uh, Greg, thank you so much for the time today, man. This is a real joy. Yeah, it was really nice meeting you, man. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.